it's kind of a letdown because it's right when it gets into the good part of that song, it just kind of tapers off, right? Everyone's ready to like start rocking and it just kind of goes away. But um, glad you guys are here. Hey, congratulations to you for being the responsible ones that woke up on time and came to church, right? In an age where your phone changes the time for you, there are still people that oversleep. So uh, anyways, thank you guys for being the responsible ones. 51 out of the 52 weeks of the year, it is the nine o'clock that is the biggest, except for this weekend. It is always the 11, which is packed because they think it's you know a different time than what it is. But anyways, we are in the book of Revelation. We are in the home stretch. When I say the home stretch, we have two chapters left. Um, and it's interesting, I was talking to a, a really, really sweet woman last night and she just started coming like last week. And she goes, you know, I've never heard Revelation taught in such a positive, uplifting manner. And I'm like, well, you missed all the bad stuff. So uh, <laughs> we're only in the good stuff. <laughs> so that's why it's so positive and uplifting. And I said, if you would have been here a month ago, it was, uh, it was pretty hard stuff. But just to catch you guys up real quick, and today is a lot of fun. Chapter 21 is a, a fascinating chapter. I think we're going we're gonna to geek out a little bit today. We're going to talk about anisotropic stones, because I know that's on your mind, and um, a lot of geeky stuff today. It's going to be a lot of fun. But let me, let me tell you how we kind of ended up to where we are in chapter 21. Chapter 18 is a big turnaround in the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. We spent a lot of time talking about an evil empire called Babylon the Great. It will be the last great empire before Jesus Christ comes back. It will be led by the Antichrist and a false prophet, a false spiritual leader. In chapter 18, that civilization falls. In chapter 18, we hear all the people who are in love with evil lamenting over the fall of their civilization. They're crying, they're weeping, they're wondering how this could possibly happen. In chapter 19, we see the exact opposite. We see the people of God rejoicing because evil has fallen. Not only are they rejoicing because of that, they're rejoicing because Jesus Christ is coming back in the clouds, the rider on the white horse. He is going to confront the evil armies of the world, hundreds of millions of people, and he is going to obliterate them very, very quickly, throw the Antichrist and the false prophet into hell. And then in chapter 20, Jesus deals with Satan. Now in chapter 20, we talked about a lot of stuff that maybe a lot of you have never even heard of before called the millennial reign, which I believe to be a literal thousand years that Jesus sets up his shop on earth, rules this earth in perfection, Satan is loosed, there's a rebellion, that rebellion is crushed very, very rapidly, and then we see the throne of judgment at the end of chapter 20, and it's, it's, it's kind of dark. It says that these people are thrown permanently into the lake of fire, Okay. Now, all of the dark stuff is gone by this point. Chapter 21 is about heaven. The majority of everything we know biblically about the afterlife, about heaven, is found in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. So this is an absolutely fantastic chapter. I think you'll have a lot of fun with this. And there's still a little bit of a challenge in chapter 21 that God has for us, and we'll talk about that at the end, okay? So you should have a notes hand out in front of you. Has everything I'm gonna talk about in there. Um, everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, that's very, very handy. It has all the scripture and it has all the notes. If you click on sermon notes, everything should be on that. And if you have your Bible, we're in the very, very back of your Bible. We're in the second to the last chapter of the entire book. And um, 
I think you'll like this. It's a very, very interesting chapter, okay? So uh, no more of my monologuing here. Let me, let me pray. Let's jump into chapter 21, and we'll see where the Lord takes us today, okay? And the sun is out today, which is just, yes, praise God. Walked out, and I was like, what is this ball of light in the sky, you know? Like, so anyways, let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, Lord. God, I pray that, that, I pray, God, that today's lesson gives some people in this room some hope. Lord, that we can remember that you have gone to prepare a place for us and that you want us to be in that place. Jesus, we pray that you bless this church, lift us up, God, and encourage us. We pray that everything we do today honors you. We pray, Father, that you bless every church in our community. God, every church that, that says you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord, God, bless them, grow them, Lord, touch those pastors and their leadership, and we pray that we can advance your kingdom in Rutherford County and beyond, God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 21, guys, okay? I'm gonna read a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down, and I'm telling you, you'll, you'll, you'll think this is neat. Here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them and they will be his people's and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now, a significant chunk of the book of Revelation is focused on an evil city called Babylon the Great. We talked about that for a second. Now the shift from the evil city is gone and we're going to focus on the opposite of that, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, there's gonna be a couple of things in this chapter that may stretch some of your theology a little bit. One of them is this. We have this idea that we go up to heaven. We don't go up to heaven. Heaven actually comes down to us and it rests on a new earth. Now, what's interesting about it resting on a new earth, it has always been God's intention for humanity to spend eternity on earth. Now, that sounds a little funny, but we start off on earth. In fact, the Bible tells us where on earth it starts. It's in modern-day Iraq at the corner of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It's where the Garden of Eden was. It starts on earth, and the old earth and the old heavens pass away, but there's a new earth that God is going to create and we're going to spend eternity on that new earth. It was always God's intention for us to live on earth. Fascinating. So like I said earlier, the bulk of our knowledge of heaven comes from chapter 21 and chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. Now, what also is neat about the last two chapters of the Bible is they directly connect to the first two chapters of the Bible. So in chapters one and two of Genesis, we see the first creation. We see humanity, the universe, the earth, all these things created. And we see a garden. And then at the very end of the Bible, we see a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation. We see a city, but we see the same tree, the tree of life that is found in the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. There's this continuity. There's this connection between Genesis and Revelation. It's all one story, right? And it's congruent. John says he heard a loud voice from the throne. 
at this point in the story, right, in chapter 21, the people of God are about to permanently dwell with God. This dwelling, this living with God, this promise starts in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. It is confirmed or affirmed in Leviticus. We get even closer to living with God when Jesus comes to earth, right, God in flesh. We get even closer to dwelling with God after Jesus is crucified and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God resides in us. So this buildup of humanity and God living together as one, this buildup has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Now in chapter 21 of Revelation, it is done. We are with our creator. Now this is interesting. God, we're gonna talk about a lot of interesting stuff today. Before we get into the details of our home, it is important to note that the thing that first mesmerizes John, the first thing that really captures his attention is not our home, it is who we're going to be living with, it is God. Because the true splendor of heaven is not the streets of gold and the pearly gates, the true splendor of heaven is being completely present with our Lord and Savior. That is heaven. The new city, the new earth, the new universe that we'll talk about here in a minute, which is fascinating, that is just icing on the cake. If we didn't have any of that, but we got to be with God in his fullness, that is enough, right? That is already a perfect gift. So maybe the first cool thing about our eternity is being with God. The second, in my opinion, coolest thing about being in eternity with God is the promises that God made in the book of Revelation to wipe away every tear that will come to fulfillment. Think about this. An existence where there's no more death, there's no more mourning, crying, and there's no more pain. Imagine not only being with God, but imagine God completely alleviating any pain or suffering from this life. Imagine us having perfect minds. Imagine us having perfect emotions, even perfect physical bodies. We will be in complete harmony with God. There will be no sadness, no insecurities, no depression or anxiety or hopelessness. None of those things will exist. Those things, as John says, have passed away. They're gone, right? Pretty cool. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. This is important, look at this. But the cowards, the faithless, detestables, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We talked about that last week. So God, we have seen God, we have seen Christ in several different roles throughout the book of Revelation. Most recently in chapter 20, we saw Jesus Christ as the role of judge, the judge. Now we see God in the first role that we ever see God in the Bible. So a lot of people ask, why is this church so into art? I, a, I just love art, but there's a biblical thing about art. The first thing we see God as in the Bible is an artist. 
Genesis 1 and 2. God starts with a blank canvas. He says, I'm going to put some light here, some color here, some texture here, some depth and dimension here. He's a creator. In John 14, 2, Jesus says, I'm going to go create some more. I'm going to go prepare a home for you. So think about this. If God could speak this universe into existence just like that, what in the world can God do with thousands and thousands of years to prepare a home for us? Imagine how beautiful and magnificent that home is going to be, right? Let your imagination go wild during this chapter. And God tells John, he says, write these things down. Whenever God tells you to write something down, John's like, yep, yep, let me find my pen. You know, like, write this down. This is faithful and true. So what that means is these things that we're about to read, these things are going to happen. It is a faithful thing. It's done. Now, what is done? What is done is every single, every single promise this book makes, at this point in Revelation chapter 21, God says, I fulfilled it. Every word I've given you, every promise I've told you, I've been good on those promises. Everything has been redeemed. Everything is perfect. Everything is set straight. This is possible because God is the first and the last. Those words give me chills. God says, I'm the alpha, the omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am absolutely everything. That's how God is capable of fulfilling all these promises. And these promises are for the thirsty. We're going to revisit this idea at the very end of this lesson. God says, I will freely give to everyone who thirsts. If you're thirsty, I will give you the springs of the water of life. I will give you this. This is a direct contrast to what we read in the previous chapter. This lake of fire, right? A place that is a, of eternal torment and it's dry and hot and it's awful. The complete opposite is this refreshing existence with God. And God says the one who conquers will get this. Now, who are the ones that conquer? Those aren't perfect people. None of you are perfect. One day we will be perfect because we will live in perfection with Christ, but right now we're not perfect. So who are the ones that conquer the second death, hell? Not the ones who are perfect, but the ones who thirst for God, the ones who long to be closer to God. That means if we long to be closer to God, if we do something that, that hurts God's feelings, if we do something that it isn't in accordance with what the word tells us to do, if we long to be closer to him, we should be quick to ask for God's forgiveness. We should be quick to turn from things that God doesn't want us to be a part of. When we long to be closer to God, we're not perfect. David was not perfect, but he was a man after God's heart. He longed to be closer to God. That's what we strive to be. You know what's fascinating, though, is not all people thirst for God. I know you're like, well, duh, but, but think about it, right? Following Christ is a conscious decision. Following Christ must be done intentionally, on purpose. And when we do it on purpose, we inherit the things that I'm about to read you here in a second. But not all people want the things of God. When I get into the details of heaven, there are some people that would not want to go to this heaven. Now, here's what is interesting about chapter 21. We either love lists or we hate lists. Now, a lot of Christians, I feel like we hate lists because we don't want to be held accountable for the things we do. And we don't want to be told that certain things will keep us out of the presence of God. But God gives us a list. 
Was anyone else shocked when you saw this list that number one on the list are cowards? Now listen, I have an irrational fear of snakes. It's, it's, it's irrational, it makes no sense, defies all logic, right? I remember one time we, we live on a cul-de-sac and I was weed eating and saw a snake, I mean, snake, right? On the other side of the cul-de-sac, not even in our yard, on the corner of, of our neighbor's uh, driveway. Now, I didn't do anything about the snake. I went inside and grabbed my wife. She was singing here in the middle. And I said, Alicia, you got to take care of the snake across the street. So I have a picture of Alicia taking a broom, poking, and the snake was dead. (laughs) But I have an irrational fear of snakes. Now, I don't think I'm going to go to hell for my fear of snakes because I'm a coward when it comes to snakes. I I don't think God is like going to damn me for eternity for that. What this means here is these are people who cower to culture. Now, what does that mean? That means that we let popularity and culture dictate our theology more than the Bible. Those kinds of people, according to God himself, will not see the kingdom of God. What that means is things like sexuality and sex. And instantly you're like, yeah, go get those gay people, Corey. That's what he's going to do. No, no, no. We're not going to pick on the gay people. That's less than 1% of the population. Let's talk about the 95% of Christians that have sex outside of marriage. 95%. Now that's sexually immoral. That is against what the Bible tells us to do. Now listen, if you've done that, and I'll just be open and honest with you. My wife and I, before we were Christians, we, we were doing things we shouldn't have been doing. But once we found out that God tells us not to do that, we stopped and we repented of those things. But what we've done in Christianity is we've just let culture dictate our theology. Hey, everyone's doing it, so we just might as well do it too. It doesn't matter that God talks about it from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end and that we see the repercussions of, of doing things outside of God's boundaries but we let culture dictate our theology. People who let culture dictate their theology will not go to heaven, says God. The second thing is faithless. This means people who lack saving faith. I hear Christ- Christians all the time say, well, Corey, I believe in Jesus. Man, the devil believes in Jesus. The devil used to live with Jesus, knows he's the savior of humanity. The devil is not saved because he believes in Jesus, nor are you saved because you just believe in Jesus. Saving faith is different than faith that believes that something is there. Saving faith means we live like we know that Jesus is one day going to judge us, that we live in accordance to the words of God. People who are detestable, who do unspeakable things, murderers, that's pretty self-explanatory, sexually immoral, If you want to know what is sexually immoral, anything outside of God's boundaries for sexuality and sex, one man, one woman for life, anything outside of that is not what God wants for you. Sorcerers. Now, what does that mean? That means people, yes, who dabble in the magical arts, the occult. The word sorcerer there comes from the Greek word pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. This can also mean people who are addicted to prescription medication or addicted to drugs in general, sorcerers. If you ever study the occult or get into occult thought, drugs and the occult are always married. They're always together. Anton LaVey, Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, all these guys who wrote books that are very anti-God, they all did a lot of drugs and they were deeply into the occult. They're always married idolaters, those who worship other gods. The God of our age is not like a little statue or figurine. It is self. We are gods. And so that's the God of our age. And then of course, liars, people who don't tell the truth. 
These people will not inherit what I'm about to read you, okay? Here comes the fun stuff. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. That means it's a perfect cube, right? Then he measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the, angle, uh, the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. Now, if you're like a gemologist or geodologist in here, like, forgive me if I mispronounce these. If you are one of those, I'd just like to meet you. You don't meet a lot of those. Anyways, the first foundation is jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl or beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, I don't know if that's right or not, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now that is cool stuff. Now listen, if you ever read the book of Revelation again, if you weren't with us throughout the whole book of Revelation, I said this at the very beginning, you have to give John, the author, a lot of grace. John is trying to describe the indescribable. So some people, like me, I believe this is literal. I believe what John sees in, 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 in these verses that I read is literal. Some people believe it's metaphorical, that he's just doing his best to describe this beautiful city. Here's the thing, whether it's literal or whether, whether it's a metaphor, the city that John sees must be remarkably gorgeous. It must be unbelievably beautiful. Now, John's vantage point of this city one of the seven angels, okay, one of the seven angels, if you were with us for the bowls of wrath, there's three different series of events, three different series of angels that enact these things of God. The last series that pour out God's wrath, one of those angels comes up to John and says, let me, let me give you a better vantage point of this city. Brings him up to a high mountain. He says, look, watch this happen. Now look at this, and I may be reading too much into the text, but I'm gonna throw it out there. 
Notice that the holy city descends down, displaying God's glory. Unlike cities that we build from the ground up, the city of God is built from God down. Let that sink in for a second. Everything we do, we should start with God and work our way down versus starting with us working our way up. Start with God, work your way down. That's how he builds the holy city, okay? From God on down. Now, here's where I'm gonna mess with your theology a little bit. When I say me, the the Bible's gonna mess with some of your theology a little bit. Now, a lot of people think that we go to heaven when we die, and that's not exactly true. This chapter right here, none of us go to this place when we die. There's a lot of bad theology at funerals. I've done a lot of funerals, been to a lot of funerals, and I don't recommend you tell people that their theology is bad at funerals because they're not gonna like you, but you will notice that there's a lot of bad theology at funerals. And so a lot of people, when you're at funerals, you know, you know, great-grandpa passes away and Aunt Susie's like, great-grandpa's dancing on the streets of gold. He's not. Um, it's a nice thought, but that's not a biblical thought. No one has entered into the heaven that we're talking about right now. So the other option is a lot of people believe in what's called soul sleep, which is also not biblical. We don't just fall asleep and just wake up and, hey, there's St. Peter in the pearly gates. That's not it either. The Bible doesn't teach us that. What happens when we die is we either go to a temporary heaven or a temporary hell until we are resurrected and given new bodies, then we are judged and we go on to a permanent heaven or a permanent hell. That's what happens, okay? Now, I know that twists some of your theology a little bit, but that's just what the Bible tells us. So this city has a massive high wall. Now, the city has no reason to protect itself because there's no bad people. So why in the world does it have a wall? In ancient times, all glory, like like huge, magnificent cities had huge, magnificent walls. It showed how powerful they were. That's why the city has walls like this. It says that all of the walls have three gates apiece on them, north, south, east, west. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were written on these walls. It also says that there are 12 foundations and the names of the apostles of Jesus, the disciples, are written on those foundations. We talked about a month ago about one of the disciples, a guy uh, named Bartholomew, who was hacked to death, bludgeoned to death with knives, that his name is written on one of the foundations of heaven for eternity. We also see, because of the tribes of Israel and the names of the disciples, that that there is this intrinsic connection between Jewish people and Christianity. We are Judeo-Christians. There is a connection there. That's why I think we should pray for Israel and pray for the leadership of Israel and support that nation because we are connected to those people, okay? We even get the measurements of this city. Look how descriptive this is. John tells us that the city is a perfect cube. 12,000 stadia is roughly about 1,400 miles. If you were to get in your car and leave from Nashville and drive to Las Vegas, that's roughly about 1,400 miles. That gives you an idea of the length and the width of this city. Not just the length and the width, but it goes up another 1,400 miles. Imagine if you were to drive straight up the length of Nashville to Las Vegas, straight up. That's how big this city is. It says the walls of this city are about 200 feet thick. That's longer than the length of this room, thick. Big, thick walls, huge city. Plenty of room for us to frolic and play and have super sweet condos for eternity. It's gonna be a really big place. 
I don't know if we'll have condos or not, but anyways. <laughs> now the foundations are adorned with a bunch of different precious stones. Stones like jasper and sapphire and all these different things that I probably pronounced wrong, emerald and jacinth and all the, the chalcedony and all these different beautiful stones that adorn the walls. These are all pictures of the actual stones mentioned. My favorite, amethyst right there. I just love that deep purple. But all these beautiful stones adorn the walls. Now, let's, let's put on our, our geek hats for a second. In the last century, we've discovered what's called anisotropic stones. Before the last hundred years or so, we had no idea that there were such a thing. So when John wrote this list of stones, he had no idea what an anisotropic stone was. Oddly enough, every single stone that John wrote down is an anisotropic stone. Now, what in the heck is an anisotropic stone? An anisotropic stone is a stone that if you cut a thin slice of it, maybe a quarter of an inch, a thin slice of it, and if you shine perfect light through an anisotropic stone, it emits every single color of the rainbow out of the other side. Now, the only way to really get perfect light to shine through one of these is you have to filter it vertically and horizontally, shine this light through this anisotropic stone. So it has to be pure light going through a certain kind of stone. And when it does that, every single color of the rainbow shoots out the other side. <laughs> Use your imagination. The next part that I'm about to read is it says that there will be no sun or moon in heaven because God's perfect light will emit. There will be no shadows. God's light will hit everything all the time. So if the foundations are made of anisotropic stones, every single color of the rainbow emits out of the walls of heaven. Does that just blow anyone else's mind besides mine? Absolutely beautiful. God is not just an artist, he is the artist. His attention to detail is astounding. And he doesn't have to do this, but how fun is it going to be when we walk around and see all these colors shooting everywhere? It's going to be gorgeous. It's going to be beautiful, right? That's cool. Not just that, they're all the gates. There's 12 gates. They will all be made of these huge pearls. They'll have to be roughly about 200 feet tall to accommodate the walls. And it's interesting, why pearls? Well, Jesus uses the imagery of pearls when he talks about the pursuit of heaven in the gospel of Matthew. We also see that there are streets of gold so pure that it's like looking at glass. Oddly enough, the Bible says that Christians will be refined like gold. So maybe these streets represent the purity of us, right? Because we've been refined like gold by the fire. Maybe that shows the costliness, the sacrifice that God had to make and that we made to be with him forever, to reside with Christ for eternity. And there is still just a little bit more. John says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does anything that is detestable or false, but only those whose names 
are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John looked around, right? He's in the city. And he's basically like, where, where are we going to worship? There's no temple. John says that there's no temple because God and Christ are the temple. What that means is there's no longer going to a house of worship. We are in perfect harmony and community with God forever. We don't need a house of worship anymore. We don't need anywhere to go. It's all around us all the time. The city also doesn't need the sun or the moon. We'll get into this a little bit more in the next chapter, in chapter 22. There'll be streets in heaven, but there'll be no street lights. There'll be no shadows in heaven. There is no darkness. Every single space is filled with the light of God. It also says that the kings of the earth bring in their glory. What in the heck does that mean? That means that there is probably a distinction of nationality in heaven. That means that there will be black people and white people and, and Asian people and all kinds of different colors and different experiences from this life. There will be diversity in heaven. Now, I don't think anyone in this room is a racist, but we tend to think of life and we tend to think of eternity through the filter of what we have experienced, right? All music in heaven is gonna sound like Hillsong or something like that, and it's not. It's gonna be a blend of all kinds of different cultures and peoples and experiences and backgrounds, and God knows that that makes heaven even more beautiful. The diversity of people, the different kinds of individuals that'll be there and what they bring to the table, basically. Very cool. Now, probably my favorite part about this whole chapter, and again, I'm gonna sound like a nerd and I'm gonna kind of take some, some, some liberties with this passage. The first time I studied the book of Revelation, this jumped out at me. I'd never heard this before. It says the gates of this city will always be open. Now, think about it. God created a new earth, a city that sits on the earth, and it even says he created a new universe. So I got to researching this. I used to think that we were somehow confined just to this city. We're not. The gates are open. So people say, what are we gonna do for eternity? We're gonna get to explore a whole new earth. What else is a lot of theologians believe that the universe will not be out of bounds for us, that we will be able to travel a new universe and see deep space and see the solar systems and see the formation of maybe new planets and all of this stuff. Think about that. We're not bound by any kind of space or time or limitations that we can still explore. We can still, God creates all this new stuff and says, go, go, check it out. Walk around, you know, go, go explore this new area. The gates will never be closed, right? Fascinating, beautiful. It'll also be a clean city. I'm a city person. I like cities. I'm from St. Louis originally, and I like big cities, but cities have dark sides. In St. Louis, we call that the east side. <laughs> but this city will have no dark side. The reason why this city will have no dark side is there are no dark people. There are no people with evil in their hearts. No one who does anything detestable or false will be in this city. So the reason why we have bad parts of cities is because there's bad people. The reason why we have any suffering in this life at all is because of sin. But we will have an eternity that is completely devoid of sin. Therefore, it is completely devoid of any kind of suffering. You know, Jesus talked about this chapter. If you go into the Gospel of John, Jesus talked about uh, Revelation chapter 21. That hadn't been written yet, but it's interesting. He talked about it. This is what Jesus says. L guys, this is one of those passages, again, that just like stirs something up in my heart. It's beautiful. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Let me pause there for a second. 
Jesus is saying this to a group of men who all of them, except for one, will be violently murdered for their belief in Jesus. Jesus looks at his disciples, the only one that wasn't violently murdered, actually there were two, but Judas hung himself and John, the author of Revelation, was boiled alive, but he was not murdered. The rest of them were all violently killed. But Jesus looks at his followers and says, don't be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He says, if that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. Listen to that. Jesus says, you're going to go through a lot of garbage. There's going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be a lot of pain. He's talking to men that we're going to go through. Peter was crucified upside down. And Jesus looks and says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. And one day you're going to live with me in a place that's going to have plenty of space. And Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And look at what he says. He says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, you will also be. And look at the last thing Jesus says as he's talking about what we've talked about today. He says, you know how to get to where I'm going. You know the way to get to my father's house. You know it. Go down the path that leads to Revelation chapter 21. That's what Jesus is saying. So, Whenever I ask these questions at the end of my lesson, this is not me condemning you. I ask myself these questions, and then I put it down in this PowerPoint, and I ask you these questions, because I think they're good questions to ask. The first one is this. If we are going to end up in our Father's house that is described in Revelation chapter 21, we have to thirst not only for God, we have to thirst for the things of God, goodness, holiness, things that are pure, things that are of the light and not of the dark. But let me ask you this. Do you honestly thirst for God? Does not praying for a couple of days make you feel depleted? Does not reading the word of God, many of you don't even know how sweet and awesome and nourishing the word of God is because a lot of people don't read the word of God. People are scrambling to find, they're buying all their self-help books and you know, some new author writes some new thing about this and we have the ultimate book that has all of the answers right there. And for some reason, Christians don't ever pick it up. We pick up every other author and nothing against all those authors, but people are like, man, did you hear what Francis Chan said? And I'm like, no, I'm too busy reading what Peter wrote. Amen. Nothing against Francis Chan. <clears throat> nothing against a lot of those authors. But until you have a good grip on the principles of this book, you don't need to be going to all those other books. This has become a supplement to other authors, and that's not the way it should be. This is our foundation, and everything else should be a supplement to this. But is the heaven we talked about today, is that even appealing to you? Do you like that idea of heaven? That's what it's going to be. Some people don't like that. Let me ask you this. The pathway to the Father's house is never through being a coward. Do we cower to culture? Guys, I would say a lot of us do. A lot of us are afraid to be called small-minded or bigoted or how can you believe that there's only path, one pathway to heaven? Well, I'm a Christian and Jesus told me that there's only one pathway to heaven. People will hate you for your beliefs. Jesus said this, guys. He says, they will hate you. How do I know? Because they hated me first. That's what Jesus says. You will be hated for your beliefs. Do you cower to that? Do you live a life that pleases you more than you live a life that pleases God? If so, you will not make it to the Father's house. 
is our greatest desire to be with Christ. Think about that for a second, is it? I know every Christian says, yeah, my greatest desire is to be with Christ. Then why don't we spend more time with Christ? Why don't we pray? Why don't we read his word? Why don't we spend time meditating and thinking about God more? If we wanna be with him more, we have an opportunity to be with him right now. Here's the other thing. There's a lot of pain in this life. You're gonna suffer in this life. I know a lot of clowns that call themselves pastors tell you you're not gonna suffer and that's not biblical. Jesus said, in this life there will be suffering, but he also says, take heart, I've overcome the world. There's a lot of promises in this book. I don't know if you guys know that or not. A lot of people don't know how many promises are in this book because they've never read this book. There are promises all throughout here, all kinds of different promises. There's even promises when it comes to things like finances in Malachi chapter three. If you'll trust God with your money, it says he'll open up the floodgates of heaven. That's not a prosperity gospel thing, but it's saying God will give you what you need if you'll just trust him with your finances. That's a promise God makes. God says if you repent and get baptized, that he'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a, a promise. The word says that. There's all kinds of promises. But we need to not only read the word of God to know what the promises are, we need to have a prayer life and we need to have a Christian community in order to stay strong and stay encouraged because life is going to get harder and harder and harder. It's going to get tough. So we need to hold on to these promises. Now here's the ultimate question, and it is so simple. But if we believe the words of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian in here, just from the gospel of John, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a home for you, if you believe that, Jesus says, you know how to get there, walk that path. Let me ask you, one, do you know how to get there? If you don't, I, ha I don't have enough time this morning to break down the entire gospel for you, but we are so blessed in the nation we live in, you can go to any bookstore, you can buy this book and you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and it'll tell you exactly how to get to the Father's house. <clears throat> Readily available for you. If you can't afford one of these, I will buy you one of these. I'll even buy you a nice one. I'll buy you a nice study Bible. I'm serious. So my first question is, do you know the path? And secondly, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, are you walking the path? Honestly, are you walking the path? Are you praying? Are you reading the word? Are you treating others the way you want to be treated? Do you have a community around you? Are you living honest and honorable and righteous? Are you seeking forgiveness when you make mistakes? I'm so sick of hearing Christians make excuses if you make a mistake, just be humble. Go to God, ask him to forgive you and do whatever it takes to shut that part of sin out of your life. Amen. Well, but you don't know my background. I can tell you my background. I had a very rough life growing up. But the Holy Spirit is bigger than the circumstances in my life. Amen. I'm so tired of excuses. Well, but what about this? The Holy Spirit. But what about this? The Holy Spirit. We are more than overcomers, the Bible says. God has a path for all of you. And at the end of that path, he has a mansion that has a lot of rooms. He has a city with plenty of space. He has a perfect eternity waiting for you. But Jesus says, you know the path, you gotta walk it. 
Now, here's the thing. If you have not been walking the path, I got good news for you. Before you leave this room today, and it doesn't have to be in this room. It can be anywhere at any time. You can humble yourself and say, God, please forgive me for what I've done. Put me on the right path. And just like that, God will do it. He'll do it. Here's the thing. Dave is walking up here to my right, your left. Everyone look at Dave. He's a good looking guy. Dave is up here to my right, your left. If you are not a Christian in here, or maybe you have some questions about the gospel or how to get to the Father's house, Dave is a very knowledgeable man. He's one of our pastors here. He's a good man. He can answer almost any question you can throw at him, okay? Go talk to Dave. There will be men and women up here at the front to pray for you. If you have any prayer requests, if you want to confess a fault, we can't absolve your sin, but we can pray with you. We can, we can, we can bear that burden with you. Come up and get some prayer. Then the last thing is this. If you have found yourself off the right path, there's communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, the body and blood of Jesus Christ is there. Everyone in this room is welcome to take that as long as you have asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. And listen, if you have done that, if you have genuinely asked God to forgive you, you are forgiven. The Bible says it's, it's in the deep sea. It's as far as the east is from the west, it's gone, okay? We can all start fresh today and get on the right path. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We lift you up, God. Lord, for anyone in this room who maybe uh, struggles with their faith, maybe they're not a Christian, but they're interested. God, please, Lord, let them come up and talk to Dave. If there's anyone that needs prayer, Lord, let them come up and get prayer from a brother and sister in this room. And Lord, if anyone has maybe gotten off the, the, the track a little bit, maybe they haven't followed the path that they know is right, Lord, let us ask for forgiveness. Let us take the steps to change. God, Lord, let us take communion today and remember that you sent your only son, God, that whoever will believe in him will not die, but have everlasting life. Father, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Bless all my brothers and sisters in this room. God, everyone in this room. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.